So chapter 4, verse 1. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihoreth, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehud, the recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abathar, the priest, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, and the king's friend, Ahshar, over the household, and Adonaram, the son of Abida, over the labor force. As we get this narrative going forward, particularly in chapter 4 and carries into chapter 5, with Solomon and how he administrated, how he ran things, we get insight to what kind of a king he was, what kind of a boss and a leader he was. And remember, Israel's in a covenant with God. So he's just not just any old king or any old prime minister. It's that unique thing where he's a king with the covenant of God over God's people. And that, that gets our attention because... There's a supernatural element more so than any other king. So maybe say Queen Victoria loved God or Louis the Sun King of France loved God in his Catholic way back in the day, one of the great kings of Europe. You could say they loved God, but they weren't in a covenant. France, under their monarchs, were not in a covenant with God. The same with Queen Victoria or the Russian Romanovs and these sorts of, and the Prussian kingdoms, all those guys, women, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Asiatic kingdoms, they were never in a covenant with God. So this is something we have to keep reminding ourselves. But Solomon is a king for God's people, and they're in a covenant. They're in the Mosaic Covenant. They have the tabernacle. They have the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant for God's presence. When they dedicate the temple, we'll see this next week, the glory of the Lord fills the place, and they can't even stay there. Keep that in mind, because it's not just a king and a great kingdom. It's supernatural with the Lord, and it's the people of covenant with God. So with that in mind, We see right away that Solomon understood the necessity of the right people in the right places. This is all business management leadership. He's got the right people in the right places. He was very wise in reading people. His kingdom was going to expand. And when God gave the boundaries for Israel before they went into the promised land, some 400 years before this, there was a fullness of boundaries that really went from Egypt, modern Egypt, to modern Iraq. There's a full boundary they're supposed to have. And they never really reached it. But the zenith of their reaching closest to it is under Solomon. When Solomon was king, the kingdom expanded geographically its borders in its maximum expanse before it would eventually retract under various other kings in the divided kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom in later times. So this is the zenith. This is the apex of Israel's geopolitical strength in human history under King Solomon. And so we know that he had to have quality people. You know, presidents only as good as his cabinet. Uh, a pastor generally only as good as the other pastors and the board of elders. That type of a thing. And who you surround yourself with is critical. We've talked about this. That we're the sum total of the five people we hang out the most with. So it's really good, like, that you hang out with five people that build you up and edify you and, and raise your thinking and your expectations of faith in your life. And then maybe there's another five people that you're discipling and encouraging and mentoring to raise them up as well. And sometimes they're one and the same. But we know that champions elevate champions and bad company corrupts good morals. And that's part of saying of a man. That's part of a saying of a Bible verse. Because bad company corrupts good morals is clearly in the Bible, right? In Corinthians there. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. After his death, after Solomon's death, Rehoboam will become king. 
And he's not going to heed the good counsel of Solomon's counselors. He's going to heed the counsel of the knuckleheads he went to school with who are short-sighted, not wise, and self-destructive, and they cause him great harm. He heeds their counsel, and you get a divided kingdom. So I saw this because these men on this list and the wives who were their wives and the families that they had and the others, they're quality people. And we're reminded yet again that if you're in any kind of position of leadership, look to equip people, look to raise people up, look to see the best in people and let these, these were his officials. And when you're in ministry, whatever role you're in or you're just in, you're in work and you have people working with you, if you're the shift lead at Starbucks and you have some coworkers, man, lift them up, equip them, elevate them, believe in them, pour into them and, and delegate to them. Don't micromanage and lord over people, but equip them and let them run with their gifts. That's how you want to lead in any leadership capacity, including being parents and even in marriage. So these men are solid men. What's interesting about these men? So Solomon raised up men and let them run with it. He, he identified, he equipped, and he delegated. This is what we see with these men. These men were identified. He recognized their skills. He equipped them, and he delegated to them. And they had great sense of responsibility because, again, Israel is larger than the size of Southern California and the general economic worth of Israel at this time is billions in their economy at that time. These guys have important, they're in charge of a lot of money and a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people, billions of dollars equivalent to our modern currencies. You will see Abathar on this list. That's interesting, isn't it? Remember, Abathar got banished. The previous chapter is the same Abathar. Abathar was a traitor against Solomon. He aligned with Adonijah, and where everyone else got executed, he got banished. But it's interesting, he's still listed in the list of people in Solomon's team. I guess it's pretty hard to fire a priest, huh? I think they're tenured. <laughs> this guy's tenured. You can't fire him, but it doesn't mean you use him. He's kind of like the guy on the sports team with a D1 scholarship, but doesn't get to play. Like you just can't, you can't cut a scholarship, and he's in the uniform, but he's not, he's not getting in the game. I just think it's interesting, though, like how hard it'd be for Solomon every time he's dealing with the court that he, he still has Abathar around who tried, who would have seen his mom executed and seen him executed had Adonijah, his half-brother, been successful in coming to power. But nonetheless, Abathar is one of those guys, he's tenured. And sometimes you're just stuck with people in a church, in, a fa- in your family, extended family, and in your business, they're, they're just tenured and they're like Abathar the priest. They're just, they're just there and you just don't let them get in your headspace and do your best you can to just keep going forward. And Abathar had no ministry to thrive under Solomon. These other men did. And that's what you want to focus on, right? Because if you have 100 people working for you, some people get it and they're loyal to the company and to you and your vision and, and your, your culture and your DNA of how you do things. And they're going to thrive. And some people, they're the boss's kid. They're this. They're tenured. And not which, they're there. And you just wish them well. And... God bless you, and you just make sure that it can't touch anything they can destroy. Verse 7, And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provisions for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur, there we go, our favorite movie, Ben-Hur. Real name in the Bible. In the mountains of Ephraim, Ben-Decker, in Machaz, Shalabim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elon, Beth-Hanan, Beth-Hesedad, in Arabath, to him belongs Sokak, all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab, in all the regions of Dor, he had Tabath, 
the daughter of Solomon, his wife. So he had married one of Solomon's daughters. That's always good. He's a son-in-law of the king. That's got to be good. But you also got to be capable. Solomon wouldn't just have you there because you're in the family line. You better be capable. So we're quite certain he was because he was over large sums of money, tax revenue. And so he gets the wife and the job. Bana, the son of Ahalad in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Bashinin, which is beside Zaratan below Jezreel, from Bashinin to Abel Mahala, as far as the other side of Jopnim, Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, to him belonged the towns of Jir, the son of Manasseh in Gilead. Tim also belonged the region of Argob in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gates. Ahinadab, the son of Edo in Mahanim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, who also took Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife. So again, another one of Solomon's daughters, married a solid guy, very capable man, and uh, this man is married into the family of Solomon, the king. Banan, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Alath, Jehoshaphat, the son of Perah, in Ishkar, Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, in Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. So this is where we see the efficiency of Solomon. And he's being creative and he's thinking outside the box because historically Israel is recognized regionally by the 12 tribes and where they were at. And some tribes have smaller, remember we did the lots back in the book of Joshua and some tribes got smaller portions of territory, some got larger. Well, what's interesting here is the geographical boundaries and how these 12 were divided are not divided upon the tribal boundaries. They're divided by kind of the topography, mountains, valley, a little more practical. This is the mountain region, this is the valley, this is the coastal plain, this is uh, the valley of Megiddo, and this is the other side, the, the, the east side of the Jordan River, only one person over there. So Solomon, think of the wisdom here. There's 12 months in a year, right? So he's got 12 leaders who are in charge of collecting revenue, tax revenue, during the course of a year, and they're going to provide the revenues necessary for running the country. That's pretty cool. So they have a rotation. You have your month, and this is the month you step up for a month. You have, it's almost like if you're Army Reserve or Air Force Reserve. It's kind of like that. You know, National Guard, you have your month. You do this, and this is the way you do it. And it, or You do it year-round, but this is when you're on, you know, this is when you shine. This is your month to shine. Show up, get the job done. And they did get the job done, and they did the job right. They were tax collectors. They're governors, and they provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year, so that's their responsibility. They had, interestingly enough, an equality in what was expected of them in providing. So you have 12 different bosses that are expected to bring the same amount of produce into the king's court to provide for the needs of the king's court and the, and the kingdom and all that stuff. So here we see, so we see him equipping and delegating, but now we see his efficiency. He saw the model that was there, the divided tribes all over the place. He said, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. We're going to redo it this way based upon regions. We're going to put 12 capable men regardless of what tribe they're from. See, position based upon merit we know is always the best course of action, right? We all know that, right? Please tell me you know that. Position based upon merit is the best advancement. Now, we like equality for opportunity, and we're all for equality for opportunity. I'm huge for equality for opportunity. But 
not everybody performs the same way. And this is what Jesus said with the parable of the minus. He doesn't give everyone the same amount. He gives one person one, one person two, and one person five. The five doubled his was ten. The two doubled his is four. They get the same commendation for success. And the one who buried theirs gets condemned for not doing anything with it. So we like equality of opportunity. And Jesus really, you know, elevates women equally in society, unlike any world religion. So there's equality for opportunity. And we understand that yet distinction of the sexes. So we love that. But not everyone's equally capable. See, I can speak some Spanish, but Sarah Yardley, being a genius, speaks multiple languages. And for her, Spanish comes super easy. She puts in one-fourth the effort to speak Spanish. With perfect accent, she gets it. I put in four times the effort, and I sound like Joe Gringo in Acapulco. You see how that works? Like, that's just not my, like, I don't get the same, you don't get the same return on investment. I hit a wall with past tense conjugation with Latin verbs, whether it's French or Spanish or Italian. I have a problem with past tense conjugation of the active verbs. I just, huh? It just, I just, I want to get it. I look at it over. When I, my dad was teaching me algebra, I'm bad at math too, advanced math. What really counts is adding, subtracting, dividing, right? That's stuff I get, and multiplying. Those are the, but when I had to take algebra, high school algebra in college, my dad tried to tutor me. My dad was a college professor. He blew a gasket. He's like, what the heck is wrong with you? And he sent me to a tutor, and the tutor said the same thing. What is wrong with you? And that I got a C in high school algebra at a junior college is still a, a miracle. They just felt sorry for me. We're not all equal. My son, Timmy, does advanced calculus in, in using celestial navigation for ships breaking down in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in ocean currents, the mathematics of how you're going to get, we're going to go with the weight of your ship and all that kind of stuff. So these 12 men, or we can say 12 women as an application for who we are today in 2022, is, is the capability to do what needs to be done. You can't just get the job because we're looking for, you know, a diverse society. I don't want the job because I'm white and I want someone else getting the job because they're Latino or Asian. You get the job because you're capable and you step up and you can do the job. And if you hire people for your company because you've got to meet a quota and they don't have the same skills as someone else, then that's not the efficiency or the fairness of God. And that's just the way it is. These men, not everyone gets to be one of the 12 governors. And that's just the way it is. And these men are capable. And that's efficiency. Starbucks recently brought back the original CEO Howard Schultz because they're in so much trouble because they try to do all this crazy stuff during the COVID time to make everybody happy. And they lost a lot of money. And their stock went way down because they lost efficiency in trying to appease people certain ways, particularly with the homeless. And they brought back Howard Schultz to raise their stock. And I had a Starbucks manager tell me, our stock's going to go up because we brought back Howard Schultz. And I watched Starbucks stock for the next month. And guess what? It went up. Because of efficiency and capability for the job required in the person doing it. Solomon didn't play silly games. And that's not a full application here tonight. But he hired the right people. He hired efficient people. And you know, if you're trusting the Lord, he'll bring the right people. And he'll give what you want. There in Virginia Beach, when we started the church in Virginia Beach in the South, I had no idea how churches were all black or all white. And there were integrated churches. But this is 1991. I'm like, well, that's where we started a church that's in Kumbaya with Jesus. 
And lo and behold, the Lord brought, brought lots of black people to our church, interracial marriages. And he gave us a diverse church without us striving or trying. When we had all these problems with a white worship leader who was so divisive. And finally, you just got to go, bro. And he did. Then Christine's comes up there, a Marine drill instructor with no hair, singing like Lou Rawls, with no instrument. I'll never forget when my good friend Jim O'Connor had been gone for three weeks. He comes back, and now we got Christine up there leading worship. He's like, did I miss something? I'm like, yeah, you did. That guy, the guy that caused division and was divisive, he's gone. This guy, this guy's a good man, and this guy's our worship leader. But see, we didn't say, like, oh, we're going to get diversification in our church with this great scheme of plans. We just went there and did what God called us to do, and he brought the people. And people will call the church and like, hey, so what time is your service? Am I welcome to come? I'm like, of course you're welcome. But then you'd get the accent of an African-American. You're like, no, am I welcome? You know what I mean? Oh, of course you're welcome. See, that's the kind of stuff. So we are sensitive to those things in the body of Christ. And the Air Force can force something on everybody. They have X amount of transgender, X amount of Latina ladies, and X amount of black men and white men and everything else. But in the end, in God's kingdom, he gives one minus, two minus, five minus, and what you do with it is what matters on the day of Christ Jesus. And great leadership is recognizing people who put in the work and get the job done. And that's how you advance with God, and that's how you advance in, in, a, in a healthy business. Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs is so clear right here with these 12 men. And if you get to marry one of his daughters, good for you. Both my son-in-laws are incredibly brilliant and efficient. And I'm so glad they married into our family and married our daughters. I'm grateful for them. Praise the Lord. And I love both my daughter-in-laws as well that married our sons. Verse 20. So we see his delegation, his, his uh, equipping and delegating, and then we see his efficiency. He just redid the whole way they do business. He just blew up the old model tri- tribal regions or, you know, the 12 tribal regions. He just blew it up and said, 12 men that know what they're doing, get it done. And they did. And they had equality of what was expected of them in their one month of every year. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. So Solomon enjoyed what his dad did. His dad fought all those wars and established all these things. And Solomon said, yep, that works for me. And he just took it another step from there. David fought all the wars. Solomon didn't have to fight any battles. He just was smart enough to expand those kingdoms without having to use military might. But he did build up his military as a threat. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So the Philistines were finally conquered, and they brought tribute. They paid taxes, and they didn't mess with Solomon in Israel because they're efficient, and he's effective, and he delegates, and he's got the right people that get things done. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Fatted fowl, for he had dominion over all the regions of this side of the river, from Tifsah even to Gaza. That's all the way to you know that's Egypt. That's everything. That's the Promised Land beyond. Namely, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine. We can say each woman under her vine and their fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So this is about. A, a couple of decades where it's all going good. 
Like, it's economic prosperity. Happy days are here again. Gas prices are low. Your dollar goes far. All the supplies you want is there. You get along with your neighbor. It's as good as it gets. You're under your fiction going like, man, it's good. This was as good as it ever got for Israel. It's a good time to be alive. It's a good time. You know, it's kind of like post-World War II in America. You know, the rise of the baby boomers, where you you got the image of the family with their three-bedroom house, right? All these houses your parents bought in Orange County for like 18,000 back in 1961. The American dream. Baby boomers gonna have three kids and ah, there was a run of prosperity from like 1946 under Truman, right through Eisenhower, right on forward to Kennedy and then the Vietnam War and Johnson and all that and it kind of, and then you know Woodstock and it's like, right? But there was a good run for a couple decades. Probably till really much, pretty much we took the dollar off the gold standard and became a fiat currency if you really want to pinpoint some things. Uh, but that's another study or just another conversation. But things are rolling. Look at that phrase. Each man under his vine is fig tree from Dan as far as Bathsheba all the days of Solomon. You know, when Christ reigns, that's going to be us. There's going to be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more conflict. The lion and the lamb lay down. And it's hard for us to think like that. But, you know, sometimes you have a really good stretch in life where there's no tension with the people you love. There's no tension with the relatives. There's no tension with government. There's no tension. It's just all good. You know, like a, vaca- like a really good vacation. This, there's a future coming where the Prince of Peace establishes real peace. Not Solomon's peace, which has a limited window. But when the Prince of Peace comes to establish peace... He's going to establish peace in a geopolitical, economic manner. But right now, he establishes peace in our hearts, right? He'll keep the perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in him. Jesus said, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I unto thee. The Prince of Peace can ruin our hearts regardless of what's going on in the world around us. It was a good, it was a good run. Good for them. Good for the people that were young in the 50s and Elvis was their hero. You know, good for them. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's tables. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and the seed, each man, according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largest of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman the Chalco, excuse me, Heman, Chalco, and Darda the son of Mahol, and his fame in all the surrounding nations. It went out. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also he spoke of trees, he was a botanist, from the cedar tree of Lebanon even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, he was a zoologist, of birds, creeping things, of fish, of men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had ever heard his wisdom came near to hear the wisdom of God. In his time, in verses 20 here through the last verse, 34, we see the expanding kingdom. And it's super important is what we keep talking about. If we're a political agency or even a business, we might say, yeah, we want to expand. I mean, I'm sure Howard Schultz with Starbucks, sticking with the theme of Howard Schultz, and they're actually replacing him now, they have a, a plan to expand Starbucks. My good friend Steve, who's a multimillionaire who had franchised dental offices, 
Years ago, he bought the dollar stores in Mexico, the chain of dollar stores in Mexico. And I said, why would you do that? I just asked him, like, I, I just want to know, like, what's the mindset? Because you have all these things that are making all this money. Why would you invest? And he goes, because if you're not expanding in business, you're dying in business. He taught me a valuable lesson. Now, that's the business world. And that's why Facebook buys Instagram and becomes meta. Right? I, like the world's like that. It's the game of monopoly. You keep, you keep growing in the business world. But here's the beauty of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And what really needs to expand in our life is not dollar stores and dental offices and clothing, surf clothing, but the kingdom of God, the work of the spirit, the promises of God, and the vision for the kingdom from here to eternity. That's what can always be expanding. See, faith can always be expanding in our lives with Jesus Christ. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So our capacity to expand our faith is always ever present to the last day of our life. Our faith can be an expanding kingdom, much more so than Solomon's billions And how do you measure the worth of a woman of faith whose faith is growing in her 90s in assisted living or memory care to men who sit in high towers trying to figure out how to make more money selling coffee globally? How can you even measure those two things? Not there's anything wrong. I mean, if you're born again and you love the Lord and you're working for Starbucks like my son Luke did, good for you. Do it as unto the Lord. But if you're living for the almighty coffee bean and that's the whole purpose of your existence in the universe, oh man, I feel sorry for you. Because no matter how many coffee cups, you, how many cups of coffee you sell, what is that? Jesus said, "What is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul?" So you own Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So what? This day your soul will be required of you, a foolish man. And what will you say on that day? But you and I, we can be the poorest people on planet Earth. God says, "Never despise the poor." We can be the poorest people on planet Earth, and we can be the richest woman on planet Earth at the same time. Because our, the kingdom of God can expand in our life like a mustard seed. And we can move mountains. And the promises of God in our life are not limited to what the worth of the dollar is, the value of gold, or cryptocurrency. The worth of our life is identified by our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And therein is our confidence, not a rising, falling stock market, which, of course, is falling more than it's rising. You see? Isn't that wonderful here tonight? Whatever to hear for like, a, I'm trying to sell you cryptocurrency, be like, oh, man. Trying to sell you precious metals, well, maybe. Trying to sell you land, I think, will wait two years, right? But I'm not selling you anything. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, faith and the person and the work and the promises and the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ. So our kingdom can just keep on expanding. And whatever the world's doing, trying to figure out their problems, let them do it. But on the day that Christ comes for us, may we be an expanding kingdom, much more so than Solomon's. Also, it says that Solomon has largeness of heart. What an interesting phrase in the New King James, largeness of heart. In verse 29, it says he has wisdom, great understanding, and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Then it says he understands all these things. So he's a botanist, a zoologist, insects, fish. He's always growing is what he's doing. He's always growing. He's always growing. And this is why it's so important to add to your faith, knowledge, and keep growing. Always growing. I just recently read the book, One Million Followers. I just read it. I wonder, understand, like, 
how someone gets a million followers on Instagram. Well, this is interesting because it's how everyone's trying to sell products on planet Earth right now. So I'm interested in like why you post this and it doesn't go anywhere with this Lauren Daigle song and I post this with an 80s song and it goes to 30,000 views. Like what, what is the deal here? Then I learn all about the algorithm that your friends don't even see your posts anymore. Only 5% of them on Facebook. And this all-powerful algorithm says, hey, there's a good response to your 5%, so we're going to let 10% more see it. But if you give us $15, we'll show it to 30% of your followers. Like, what? So I really learned a lot reading the book, One Million Followers. I learned how, all, how it all works, what the code is, and, and, and all these things you should post at this time. It should be this, and these are the songs you should be using because these are the songs that are trending. I'm like, oh, please, capital P. But I added to my life in the month of July when I was sick, a better understanding of how Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and all these things work, and TikTok. I'm not an expert, but I probably know more than the average person. I just wanted to know. I learned Russian to learn Russian. I don't speak perfect Russian, but you know, sometimes like, hey, I know what that says in Russian. That's pretty crazy. Spanish, I turn on Spanish radio, hey, I got about 60% of it. And the parts I don't get, I should get, but I just don't recognize how it should sound properly since I say it improperly. Right? Oh, that, about Ansantia, right? Huh? Yeah, that's how it's supposed to sound. And I'm like, huh? What's that? I'm like, a Like Gringo Joe and Acapulco, right? But still, I learn stuff. Not just how to speak Spanish or read Spanish, but how to relate to the Latin culture and a bigger vision. Not just a 55-year-old white man in Southern California vision. Bigger vision. Yeah. That's a good thing, right? Always adding to your faith. And we want to keep growing. Solomon, zoology, the insects, the fish, like what interests you? Study it. Learn. Learn how to build a house from YouTube. Build a house. Study interior design. Learn a foreign language. Remember, Charlemagne said when you learn one of the greatest kings of all time, when you learn a foreign language, you, you learn a whole new life. You gain another soul is what he said. That's the beauty of learning a foreign language. You gain a soul. The Russians aren't my enemies like they were when I was growing up. You know, like the old Cold War stuff. Once I went to Russia and I learned Russian, it's like, hey, comrade. Da, da, comrade. Yeah, you know. This is my dog. See, I can speak some Russian. Estas mi perro, right? Like, you're like, or estas mi perro, right? Like, you, you just, you figure it out. See, it always takes me two times in Spanish, right? I would, Still, though, so I want to ask you this question before we move on to this chapter. What are you learning to keep your mind stimulated and your faith stimulated in the Lord? What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? What are you doing with your free time to understand things and grow in your knowledge to be of a largeness of heart? Do you have goals on things you want to learn and grow in? Do you want to, are you, are you interested in finances? Are you, are you interested in real estate? Are you interested in flipping? Are you interested in precious metals? And why right now the biggest battle on planet Earth is between U.S. government debt with treasury bills and the dollar versus gold, which is really the battle of fallen men versus God's economy. <laughs> it's, it's almost like free entertainment. What interests you? Are you interested in different skills, different things, history? My son, Timmy, loves history. I love history. Timmy always wants to talk about history with me. Hey, I never knew the czar did this. I'm like, dude, let's talk about Russia right now. But add to your faith. Like, see, this is where I say, like, 
When I'm 80, I'm going to focus on chess, being a chess master, and mastering Russian as much as I can. It'll keep my mind stimulated. In my 90s, I'm not sure, right, if I get there. But I want to keep growing. Don't you want to keep growing? Because the moment you, if like, <laughs> like my friend Steve said, if you're not growing in business, you're dying in business. And if you're not growing in the Lord and growing in your knowledge of things that all come back to Jesus Christ, then you're dying. And let me tell you, in 35 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people die in an elephant graveyard of laziness and unbelief. Add to your faith. Expand your vision. You know, see, when in learning Spanish and in learning Russian and, and learning a lot of the Asian culture in the last two years, watching a lot of Asian TV and even picking up Korean and things like that, it has expanded my vision for the Great Commission. And it helps me understand other cultures. When I watch foreign films, I learn about those cultures and I understand how they think differently than I think. I grew up going to Carlsbad High in the 70s. They grew up going to public school in Shanghai in the early 2000s. And it's very different than when my kids went to school at Calvary in the 2000s, right? See, these things fascinate me. I want to have largeness of heart, and so do you. Because in Solomon's case, largeness of heart is a a constant learning of the things that are truth in the universe and the things that make up the human experience in time, space, and matter toward the salvation of faith in Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom. And it all goes together. It all goes together. And it stirs you up. It stirs me up. Four years ago, we had given very little resources to missions in Russia in the history of this church. In the last three years, man, a lot. Church plants in Crimea, church plants in, uh, down by Sochi, Youth camps in Siberia? Come on now. You learn, to learn the Russian alphabet, you might just have a bigger vision. Largeness of heart, that's what we want. Largeness of heart. Largeness of heart for the kingdom. Chapter 5. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Yeah, he's like, yeah, David's awesome. They're buddies, had an allegiance. He's the king of Lebanon. Solomon sent to hear him saying, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke to my father David saying, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay your wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know there's none among us who has skill to cut timber like Sidonians. And so it was when Hiram heard these words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. So this Gentile king in the north is praising the Lord, the God of Israel, because Solomon is requesting the cedars from Sidon to build the temple for the Lord. The kingdom's expanding. How joyful it would be for Hiram to see the sorrow of David's passing, to see and rejoice that Solomon, his son, is expanding the empire. What a joy that is. Because again, so often it's a, a dumbing down as opposed to an elevating. Wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. It's easy to... to have a drop-off of the things of the kingdom 
Because if you do nothing, that's what you'll get. But you have to be diligent and you have to pursue the things of the Lord. You have to go after things of God and then you're elevating. And to elevate and expand things takes effort. And Solomon's doing that. So what a joy to hear him. And to contrast that, when Solomon dies and Rehoboam becomes king, his son, it's, it's a drop off. So all the surrounding kings are like, oh my goodness, man, Israel just went from like this to that. It's a dumbing down geopolitically. It's a dumbing down economically. It's a dumbing down morally and spiritually. It's just the worst. But in this case, it's a good time. Things are going good. So what should get our attention right away. You know, we've been talking a lot about supply chain, right? You got to have your supply chain. You're going to build a temple. You need the right supplies. The last two years, they haven't been able to get the stuff to finish houses they were building all over the United States. Can't get the lumber. Can't get the bricks. Can't get the plumbing pipes. Really hard to get the plumbing pipes, by the way. And all the supply breakdown during COVID. Supply chain to build the temple. Solomon's vision is huge. He's going to build the temple for the house of God. But you got to have the right stuff. And what you got to appreciate about Solomon is he's going to find a way. You know, it's a lot of work. I think about this. I haven't been to Lebanon, but I've been to Israel. And I've been to Tel Aviv and I've driven the road where you go up toward Mount Carmel and up in that northern area. It'd be a lot of work to cut down all this wood take it to the coast, like put it in the Mediterranean Sea, 60 miles of coastline, bring it down, unload it. Think of the weight, the, the metrics, you know, the, the, the math, the physics required to pull this off. To, to do this, let alone the quarrying of the rocks, which will come up, but to do this, some people just look at something, oh, that's just too much. Like people are like that. We don't want to dumb down the vision of God or the things of God. Just because something is an extensive project doesn't mean it's not the project God's given you. We don't want to dumb things down just because the world of unbelief dumbs them down. We want to have a big vision, and Solomon has a big vision. Successful women and men in the faith of Jesus Christ, they find solutions. They don't look at obstacles and excuses. They find a way. Our God is able Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and all that we could ask in his church for his glory in all generations. There's a day when Pastor Chuck's in a small little building over there off Sunflower. How are you going to get like, what is it, like 16 acres, the land that's still there right now that Calvary owns? Like, our God is able. Like, you have to take steps of faith. And remember, someone gave Chuck a million dollar check and God told him, go and take the check from that guy. In Pastor Chuck's testimony of the Calvary Chapel movement, he turned down a $1 million check when he was asking God for a million dollars at the same time. Like, I asked for a million. He hands me a million. And the Lord goes, that's not the million you're getting. (laughs) You got to be dialing with the Lord to turn that check down. A million was worth a lot more back then than it is now. But when you see the Karis building, the Karis field, the Logos building, the school, the sanctuary, many of you were there. Some of you were there in the tent days. Blue and Gloria were. You see the photos of the tent in the fellowship hall, and you're like, you're thinking, wow, we're talking like the equivalent of billions of dollars now to pull off what happened. Don't be afraid to have a big vision, and don't be afraid to ask for great things from the Lord to run with that vision and fulfill that vision. We should never start a new year with a smaller vision than the vision we had from the year before. So if it's Bobby and Dominican, bigger vision in 2023 than 2022. If it's Alexander in Crimea, bigger vision in 2023 in a war zone than 2020. He's going into Ukraine doing all kinds of stuff. He's got to go by the Chechen forces too to get in there. Like, what? Bigger vision. 
Show us a photo from your phone that shows you got a bigger vision in the new year. A vision that can get past the obstacles of how to get cedar wood from Lebanon down to Tel Aviv and 60 miles through a mountain range that's 3,500 feet high to get to Jerusalem. Give us that kind of vision. Because the answer's there. Because whom the Lord calls, he's equips. And if he's called to do great things, he's going to have the solution to those great things. So it's not the obstacles that we can see or excuses that we need. It's prayer and dependency and clarity of vision and waiting on the vision and looking for solutions. If we're going to be fruitful for the Lord, we find a way. Again, when Shoreline had their 50th anniversary, this building about five years ago, Shoreline Baptist Church, and they had this whole display, the history of Shoreline in the gym. Let me ask here briefly, because some of us served that day for them. Did, is anyone here tonight saw the display of the 50 years of history of Shoreline in the gym? Anyone? So right now, I'd be the only one in this room. Because we did children's ministry for them on their 50th anniversary. So we have all the people here serving, and then they had this display. But I went through there, and I looked at all this stuff. Like when you go in your kid's classroom on the last day of school, like that kind of thing. And I looked at all this stuff, and I was amazed what st- stood out to me the most was the increments by which this property was built on these six acres, but the opposition to the church being built here in the 60s. The articles, these, these groups of people that were organized trying to stop this church from being built on this piece of property. And the earth is the Lord's, everything there in it. And the Lord says this building's going to be here 55 years later. It's going to be here 55 years later. And it is, and we are. But I was amazed... Somebody back in the day, these Southern Baptists had the vision to f- grind it out and fight it through. I remember when Pastor Chuck was in a lawsuit with the Department of Forestry over K-Wave broadcasting on Saddleback Mountain. And that's when he said to me, well, you know, Jesus and good lawyers. Huh? Okay. He's got really good lawyers going against the Department of Forestry for the K-Wave broadcast in Southern California. Man, you've got to fight for things sometimes. You've got to find solutions. You've got to find a way to make it happen. We just can't be quick quitters. Sometimes you've got to grind it out. You've got to fight for it. And the Lord will show you how much you care. Remember I said this before, we were trying to give some money away in Africa a couple of years ago, and it was hard. It was hard to get money to these people. It was hard. And I always say, make it easy to give you money. You know, like that's a good tip for missionaries. Make it easy to give you money. Don't make it hard. If people want to give you money, don't make it hard. And it was hard. And I got to this, like, that's oh, hard to give these people money. I'm done. You know what the Lord said? It wouldn't be so hard if you're the one receiving it. <laughs> yeah, your mojo would be gojo if you're the recipient of that money. If you were, you need to find a way to get that money to those people as if you're the one receiving it. Ah. I was like, oh, that's a good word, Lord. I received that. And we found a way to get that money to him. It was not easy. But we found a way. The Lord's like, hey, I want the same hustle from you figuring out solutions to get the money of these people in the middle of Africa where no one can get it as if you're the one that's going to receive it. So don't give a half-hearted effort to the Lord. Give your full effort even if it's going to benefit you. Isn't that a good word? Because so often we slack off when it's volunteerism or it's like for the Lord. Remember Pastor Chuck used to say, don't bring your lame offerings to the Lord. Don't drop off your junk at Calvary Coast to Mesa. Buy something new and drop it off. The Lord doesn't want your junk. Salvation Army doesn't want your junk. Savers doesn't want your junk. The Lord definitely doesn't want your junk. Find a way. Solomon, he's got a way. 
he's like, man, and not only that, pay the labor what they're worth. Solomon goes, hey, you know what? Look what he says. He says, we're going we're gonna to pay them. Like, hey, we'll pay them what they deserve. We'll pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. Look, name your price. This is, this is independent contracting, hiring people. And like, listen, we're going to pay you. We don't know what you're worth. You tell us what you're worth and we'll pay you. Like, if you take care of your people, if you have a big vision, you realize everything belongs to the Lord so you can bless people and you can pay them well. But if you're a small-minded vision and it's all on you and you got to hold on tight, it's like you're not going to pay them what they're worth and no one's going to want to come back. The worship people aren't going to want to come back. The assistant pastor's going to want to get a real job because you don't pay them well. They're not going to come back. They're not going to come back. Especially in Jesus' name, we don't want to take advantage of people. We want to pay them what they're worth. And we always want to value you and your time and energy. And we always want to pay you above and beyond what you're worth. We always want to pay our people when we hire them, not only what they're worth, but 10% more so we, they can tithe and learn that principle of trusting God with their finances when they work at the church. Bless your people. Our God's a blessing God. And when you have someone that does your yard work and all, you're thinking, well, you know, this and that and everything else. Listen, think about Christmas season. And think about giving them a couple hundred dollars. Let them know you love them and you appreciate them. Let them know you value them. I watched a guy my age tear up cement in my backyard for a week. I gave the guy hundreds of dollars in the tip. That guy's my age, almost 60, and he's out there jackhammering, lifting this huge cement. I'm like, dude, we're just going to keep giving him $100 bills. Because that guy is doing something that deserves, and, and you know they appreciate it too. People that work for you and you bless them. People take care of my dad. I give them tips. I'm not happy with someone. I scolded someone at a restaurant recently. I shouldn't have done it. But I gave him a huge tip like, hey, we're all good. You know, pay people what they're worth. That's, pro- that's a book of Proverbs summarized as an employer to employees. Pay them what they're worth. And they will want to come back. And they'll give you a quality effort every time they show up because you value their labor and they know you value their labor and they appreciate it. Me as a guest speaker, Bobby and Sophie as worship leaders and anyone else at anything they do, take care of your people and pay people who work for you what they're worth. Don't see how cheap you can be. See how generous you can be because God's the one that gives you the money. It's never about the money. It's about the heart. He can always give you more money. Money can fall out of the sky and land on your roof. Strangers call you and give you thousands of dollars. People walk up to you. People walk up to you and give you a bunch of money in an envelope, and then you have a prayer need. Comes to you five people later, and you get an envelope. You don't even know how much money it was. You say this is from the Lord for you. Like that's how you want to live. You want to take care of people. You want to value people. It's never about the money. Oh, the prophet. The king says to the prophet, "What do we do about the thirty thousand talents of silver we paid for the Syrian army?" And the prophet says back to him, "Is the Lord not able to replace it?" It's not about 30,000 talents of silver. It's about the heart being right with God. Take care of people who do you good. And even those who don't, let them know that God loves them. Then here I'm sent to Solomon saying, I have considered the message which you sent me. I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me. And I will have them broken apart there and you can take them away. And you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all of his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Then Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. 
So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month in shifts. And they were one month in Lebanon, two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon has 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stones in the mountains, besides the 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stone to build the temple. One final thing we see here tonight before we say our final word of prayer is it says the two of them made a treaty back there in verse 12. Isn't it? It's always good to be looking for allegiances and alliances and networks of people that you're like-minded with. Look for what we have in common. You know, when we're looking at like how we want to expand missions, outreach, and giving, and looking to expand and just keep on expanding, we're not looking for the things that divide us. We're looking for the things that unify us. If you look for what we have in common, that'll be a much better way to approach things than looking for what we don't have in common. And if you can understand majors from minors, that's really good. But we want to build relationships. We want to respect people. We don't want to be quick to criticize other ministries and other ministry leaders. That's just, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, the, the more mature you come in the, become in the Lord, the less denominational you are. And as I'm in my 60s, I'm glad that's the way it is. I watch men get to the 80s thinking they're the only ones that write, are right, and if you don't agree with them, you're completely wrong. You don't want to be that guy or that girl because you'll print your little newsletter and no one will even care and you'll step into eternity and someone will pick up that newsletter 10 years later after you're gone, I'll just say how you were right and everyone else is wrong and unless they believe like you, they're wrong. Who wants to be that person? We want to build allegiances with people that can agree on common denominators in Jesus' name for the work of the Lord and the kingdom of God. I mean, two people in a marriage quite often can't even agree. How do you expect two Calvary chapels even to agree? The fact that we can agree is a beautiful thing because that's what the Spirit does in our lives. We endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's already there. So when we're looking for building allegiances and expanding the kingdom and what God's doing in our life, we should be looking for the common ground in faith in Jesus. And we should be walking in the established unity that we already have through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the baptisms of the Spirit, and the promises availed to us. We shouldn't be looking like, well, this and that and that. We should be looking like, hey, let's make, let's make allegiances with Hiram and agree on the things we agree on. And let's do that. I think it's a good word. I, I totally believe it's what God honors, for sure. Because anyone in the mission field in a faraway land knows you've got to find diversity to maintain your existence in the ministry. And in faraway lands, so often missionaries in church history, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, would have so much distinctly different than them historically. Man, would you somewhere like in Haiti? Man, you don't have time to figure out what's dividing you. You have to, you have to focus on what's unifying you to do the work of the ministry and be faithful and to fulfill it. So we look for the allegiances. That's what we look for. We look for what we have in common that we can work on and what we can make a treaty together on to advance the kingdom of God. That's what great glory has done with the Harvest Crusades for over 30 years. That's what Billy Graham did for over 60 years, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. That's what we want to do, and that's what we want to look for, to the glory of Jesus and to our own benefit of maturity in the faith. Amen?